Welcome to another episode of Steve's Speed Shop, brought to you by Warranty Wise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by Mini Sports, specialising in the classic Mini since 1967. And we're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They sell Harley Davidsons, lots of them, and very lovely they are too. Find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. My guest this week is Andy Entwistle. Now, Andy's done all kinds of jobs in the motor industry, which is helpful if you're going to be a guest on this show. But right now, he's the guy who's bringing back the British Motor Show, the great British Motor Show. The new location uh, for the event is the Farnborough International Exhibition Centre. Yes, where they have the uh, Farnborough, where they have the air show. And it's on from the 19th to the 22nd of August. But it's not just a load of cars in a big hall with kind of ropes to stop you from touching them or getting involved with them. It's an indoor-outdoor show. It's interactive. It's 21st century. Um, Great guest. Really opinionated guy, which, again, is always helpful. My guest this week, he's a Wigan lad, Andy Entwistle. So, Andy, what's what's your biggest and best motor show memory? Because I've got a few myself, because I've... I've been to a fair few shows myself. What's yours? Oh, two. One of them... So the first one was actually, I remember when they launched the Lotus Elise. And I remember sitting in the Lotus Elise when it had been launched and just falling in love with it. Never seen anything like that at all. Big memory for me. Never owned a Lotus Elise, but will we'll do one day. That was a Series 1. The other one <laughs> was courtesy of Alfa Romeo. Uh, and so the Lotus Elise was quite a few years ago. A few years later... A friend of mine worked for Alfa Romeo, said, come on down to London. And I got down early on. It was when the most show was in London. It was changing between the two. And um, I'd done the show in the morning. And I was meeting a mate at lunchtime. And I said, I'll meet you at the Alfa Romeo stand. And they had a bar above the stand. <laughs> and we went to the bar. And there was free um, beer. And the next thing I know, this other mate of mine turns up. And I said, you're not meeting this till 5 o'clock. And he went, it's 6.15. And we'd been up there all afternoon drinking free beer, of Alfa Romeo. <laughs> right, well, I've got a few myself. Um, I remember the launch of the um, the new Beetle at Detroit. Went to yeah. the, I used to go to the Detroit show every year. And I remember the hoopla, the enormous hoopla that Volkswagen um, put on with kind yeah. of go go girls they they really hammered the sort of you need you meet the nicest people in a beetle type you know thing austin powers go go girls the 60s peace and love flower power blah 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 and there was this incredible presentation and then they pulled the the sheet the bed sheet <laughs> You know, whatever it was coming up the yeah. car, as is traditional. And the anti-climax <laughs> was palpable. You know, there were thousands of people, literally thousands of people stood around. They pulled the cover off it, and people went, oh, is that it? <laughs> it was such a shame, wasn't it? Because it was a car we all wanted to love. You know, it's like, oh, brilliant. The Be- you know, like the Mini and the Beetle, and it's like fantastic. And they just got it so wrong. Well, look at... Look at the streets of Britain now, 2021, mm. and see how many young people, and by young people, we've got to qualify that. <laughs> young, younger than us. Younger than <laughs> us, which is more or less everybody. 
Yeah. Um, the number of young people, particularly young women, and that may seem sexist, but it's true, who drive Mini, Fiat 500, whatever that's got to do with the Fiat 500, retro-styled cars. Retro-styling and trading on your, your illustrious history. Absolutely. Has and become a so- massive a massive hit with the car buying public yeah. here in the UK, a- hasn't it? So I'm currently towing this dead mini back from Farnborough, where the show is, to BCA. And the reason being, last week we did some filming for something really cool that's coming out. We're doing car football. We're we're replicating the Euros. So we've got England, Italy, Germany and France. And, of course, England is uh, the old minis. We've got a lot of old minis. Well, old new minis. Italy, Fiat 500s. France, Citroen C1s. Do you know for Germany? Didn't even consider the Beetle. Smart car. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just it wasn't, wasn't even on the radar. Why, why, you know, Beetle, and they're cheap enough, but no, it was, it was the Polo. So, oh, the Polo. Oh, right. So yeah. I was, I, oh, I thought you, yeah. Yeah, the Polo is, is, it's a forgotten car in some respects. It's one of those cars that is slightly, well, I was going to say slightly anonymous, anonymous, in that it's been a huge sales success for VW. And it's it's a real first car. Well, I'm going to say a real first car. It was a lot of people's first car. Um, but there's not that same nostalgia for the Polo, is there, that there is for, say, a Golf? Well, do you know why? Because Go on. Because they're reliable and they do everything you want them to do. There's no jeopardy in driving a Polo. <laughs> and I hate to say this, but the minis that we had, and, you know, bear in mind for this, for this particular kind of car football thing, we bought a load of cheap cars because we knew they were going to get remodeled. So you were not expecting reliability, but the minis, they, they were, um, they were all fairly tired cars, but we loved them for it. The Fiat 500s were hilarious. It's just like the German football team. The Polos were brilliant. They started, they stopped, they did everything they wanted to do. They were perfect. Hold on. Cars. So they're the Franz Beckenbauer. They really are. The and Kaiser. But yeah, not exciting in the slightest, but really well built, solid. And, you know, and actually when, when the few of the cars had these coming together, you know, the fouls, as we called them, <laughs> unfortunately, the, the mini I've got in the back at the moment took it fairly hard. There was definitely a dive there. And, and then both wheels went different directions. The polo that hit it brushed itself off and carried on. <laughs> I was going to say this might this might be a bit of a, a stretch, but you, you're talking to a guy who used to present um, a football phoning show. So the mini is effectively the Owen Hargreaves in that it looks British. Yeah. It looks British, but it's actually German. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, it is. And, but you know what? It's got a bit of style while it's playing. That's what we liked about it. It did look good, um, and and the, it's it's really interesting because the Fiat 500, really nippy little things. Um, of all of them, I hate to say this because, of course, I should be saying to the Mini because it's England and, and so on and so forth. The Citroen C1s were fantastic. I just, they were in and out. They, they just, Paul Swift and his team were, were doing a lot of the driving along with a handful of our kind of show celebs. And um, the Citroen C1s were what they were getting in, first of all. They loved them. Uh-oh. That's, that's another indication of, of the passing years in that, I knew Paul. I know Paul's dad, Russ Swift. <laughs> so it's like I'm from, I'm from that sort of I'm, yeah. I'm that age now where people say, "Oh, you know so and so," and I think, "Oh yeah, I know his dad." <laughs> he's um, he's most... a chip off the old block. He really is, Paul. 
Well, um, I've got to tell you that uh, another sort of motor show memory of mine, and it's from the from the British motor show, from the UK motor show, yeah. and the sort of heyday of the nineties. Which who knows if that heyday will come back? I mean, I would imagine you're hoping very much so. We but, hope so, absolutely. But um, we were at the we were at the show, and a mate of mine texted me and said, "I've got an idea, um, celebrity chef bingo." So I said, "Fantastic!" I said, "What are the rules?" So we quickly concocted the rules and texted a couple of other people. And it was the press day, and the manufacturers were competing to have the biggest and best celebrity chef doing the catering on their stand. So we, the rules were, you had to take a picture of yourself with food in front of you, and the celebrity chef also had to be in the picture. So I think it was like um, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, Gordon Ramsay, Ainsley Harriet. Uh, Carluccio, who was obviously on Fiat or something like that. Uh, Jean-Christophe Novelli, the guy from Le Manoir, or Cat Saisons, who I used to see when he was going to watch Arsenal and I lived next to the stadium. Can't remember his name. Um, so you had to take a picture. You had to get a selfie of yourself with the food and you sat at the table and then the chef doing his stuff in the background. And I can't remember who won, but... It involved a lot of eating and a lot of drinking. <laughs> I can imagine it did. And I, a lot of money for the manufacturers as well. Oh, yeah, but it was it was kind of... Once one of them did it... I, I once spoke to a group of sort of car marketing and PR guys about this. And uh, I think it was it's something... We were all on the Renault stand, though, in a, enjoying an adult beverage at a show. Yeah. And they said, to be honest, we'd rather not do this. It's like... You know, it's hugely expensive. <laughs> you know, this kind of enormous sort of yeah. Look, we've got we've got Jamie Oliver, and I'm thinking, how much does Jamie? You know, Jamie Oliver's cooking lunch, great, but that's not really why we're supposed to be here. But it's no. kind of capitalism in its most naked, raw sort of incarnation because they want you to go on their stand. So they're saying, look. We know the cars aren't that great. You know, it's Nissan or whoever it is, or it's Renault. We know the cars aren't that great. We know you want to go off and stare at the Ferraris and, and you know, and the, the interesting stuff. But I tell you what, why don't you come over? We've got Jamie Oliver cooking lunch. And it worked. Yeah. It used and to work. It is where they, I think that all the, the, the motor shows of the past went wrong. They started making it really expensive. You've got to spend a lot of money bringing stars in because it's because if, if you're not happy with your cars, find a different way. And what we're saying is, no, make it about the car. Yeah. If, if you believe in your product, make it. Don't, we don't want people to spend tens of hundreds of thousands or even tens of thousands on bringing in celebs and building huge stands that look really great and have one car in the middle with a few spotlights around it. Yeah. Well, you know, you know who, who really sort of revolutionised that in the modern era or, or kind of brought that back? Tesla. Because I yeah. don't think Tesla have ever given away a car, ever. You know, I, I remember Jay Leno um, recalling an anecdote of when he got his Tesla. And he just, he, he, he drove it and he liked it. And he said, I'm going to get one. And Elon Musk, this was very early on, Elon Musk said, yeah, well, okay, I'll believe it when I see it kind of thing. You know, the ultimate petrol head buys yeah. an electric car. So Jay Leno goes out and buys his Tesla full price and then rings Elon Musk to tell him, and sort of Elon, uh, the, the phone rings forever, and then Elon Musk answers the phone, and he's really sort of, oh, who is it? 
It's Jay Leno. I'm just ringing you to say I've got my Tesla. He said, oh, great. He said, did I wake you up? And he says, yeah. He says, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. He said, it's not four o'clock in the afternoon in China, Jay. <laughs> you know, which is obviously where he was and where, yeah. where the biggest car market in the world is. And although I've been to car shows all over the world, including Japan, Korea, the States, and all over Europe, I've never been to China. Have you ever been to China? I've not done the Shanghai show yet. No, I, I planned on going this year. But, of course, with all that's happening in the world, that's not going to happen. Um, but it, it's, it, it is where you're seeing more and more of your international releases, isn't it? So where did, where did, your, did your involvement in motor shows come from a passion for cars, or is it just a job? No, oh, God, no. It, it, there's far easier jobs than this. <laughs> this um, I, 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 my passion for cars came from the motor show when I was a kid. You know, going to the motor show as a kid, as a lot of us did. And, you know, I've seen those cars when I was a youngster, growing up, sitting in them, smelling them, all of that. And, and I just got my love, and I'm a complete and utter car fanatic, always have been. Lucky enough to work in the industry. And, um, and I, I ran, I worked for a number of manufacturers, ended up running a media company, and we produced content and uh, did car reviews, but also started creating car events. And that's how I got into creating car events. So we did trade events, and I was involved in other motor shows. And I just had this desire to bring the British Motor Show back because I think since we've lost it, we've lost a generation of car fans. All those, all those kids, the, the people that were me and you now, these nine or ten-year-olds, they, they're missing this. And, you know, the industry, I think, is missing it as well. So, I said, well, you know, it, it's, it's an absolute desire to bring the show back and do something good for the UK automotive industry. Since well, I, I, I've told this story numerous times on, on the show, so uh, I'll keep it short, but... Um, Part of my passion for cars and motorcycles, it, it, it principally comes from my dad and my mother's father, my, my grandfather, John Moore, who was a great enthusiast. He'd been a motorcyclist on Rudge Motorcycles back in the day. He always had interesting cars, but he never owned anything that wasn't British. He was a Victorian. He was born in the last year of Queen Victoria's reign. Um, he learned to fly in the very early days of aviation at Britain's second airport, which, do you know what that was? The first one was Croydon, I'll give you that. Can you, bear it in mind where I am, can you guess where the second one was? It's Manchester. It was Squires Gate in Blackpool. Was it really? Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. And he wow. learned to fly very early on. He was a great enthusiast, but would never, he was a great patriot, obviously. If you're born in 1900, you're 14 when the Great War breaks out, you're 40 when we get involved in the Second World War. You're yeah. going to be, I would imagine, quite patriotic and quite averse to buying anything that wasn't British. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. But he and my mother, my mother told me this story in great detail and I was fascinated because she has no interest in cars. Um, but she told me this story of how when she was 14, he took her to the motor show at Earl's Court. They went down on the train from Manchester and he went down there to test drive a Citroen DS which was new. Ah, uh, yes. Because, of course, what you could do back in the day at Earl's Court, at the big show there, you could go onto the stand, and the, if you were interested, the salesman would say, well, yes, of course you could drive it. Um, 20 minutes' time, we'll, you know, we'll, our Matt Chat will take you out there. And, you know, if you were the right sort, and my granddad was very much the right sort, i.e., he looked like he had the money to buy one, and he did. Yeah. You know, he was a businessman. He was always immaculately turned out, beautiful suits, handmade shoes, all that. You know, if he'd walked onto your stand, you would have wanted to get him in the car. 
he drove the car, and my mother said, on the train on the way back. I've told this story a million times, but it's relevant to this conversation. Yeah. On the train on the way back, she said he was almost silent. And so she thought, I've got to break the tension. I've got to say something. And I said, Father, shall we be having a Citroen? And she said he pulled out his copy of the Times and said, we should be having a Jaguar. <laughs> why, why that? Because yeah. she, and she said she realised that he had been absolutely stunned by how good that Citroen DS was. Yeah. And I wonder if there'll, there'll ever be a time when a car emerges that is so superior to everything else in, in almost every respect. You know, the way it drove, the way it cornered, the way it stopped, the sort of... You know, the whole driving experience. I mean, whenever they say, oh, what are the greatest cars of all time? The DS is always in the top five, isn't it? You know, it's the Mini, it's the E-Type, it's it's the the Willis Jeep, it's the DS. Uh, Groundbreakers, isn't it? Yeah, and the Model T. It's Yeah, it's a groundbreaking car. But I just wonder if you people will ever go to a car show like they did in the mid-50s and be absolutely blown away by something that is so, such a massive leap forward in terms of its design and engineering and everything that it does. I don't know if they will. I don't, I don't think they will. Do you know, I don't think that... I think we're too risk-adverse to things like that these days. Because <laughs> as, as a car fan, as I've just said, you might find this quite amusing, but I've got a Renault Twizy. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. But it's, it's not my everyday form of transport. But for a bit of fun, and actually we use the car football as the referee, but for, for a laugh, and you know, down and up and down to the shop, it's great. And it is quite revolutionary in mm. everything that it does. And, you know, I take the youngster to school occasionally in it, and we always get looks, because it's also wrapped in a Union Jack, which helps. But that's, that's kind of revolutionary, a little bit like the DS in a different way. <laughs> I'm not trying to compare it to the DS. But it is revolutionary. But I just, it doesn't get the same kind of attention. I don't think any car ever will anymore. Well, not certainly not in the near future. I think there's some brilliant cars out there. Mm. But anything that's a bit different, people are just too scared. Yeah, yeah I, I, a chap told me a story about um, seeing the BMW Isetta. Uh, yes. uh, do you remember the Isetta? So two wheels at the front, one at the Absolutely. back. Absolutely, yeah. It, you got in through the front. The whole front of the car opened up. And in many ways, it was the car that, in their darkest hour, saved BMW. Absolutely. Although, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people say the three series was the car um, that really put BMW on the route to the success, the massive global success that BMW enjoyed today. To the extent that I was talking to some car people on Saturday, and yeah. they were t- they were saying that a BMW dealer was saying to them. That he felt that the problem with the rate with BMW was that they're now competing with themselves. So when you go into a BMW showroom, the logical alternative they've got such a wide range of cars. Now, if you go into the showroom, the logical alternative to what you were thinking of buying might just be another BMW. You know, it's it's not. They've got such a wide range. But back in the day, you know, I think the car that really put BMW on the route to where they are now was the O2 series. The, the 15 or 2, 16 or 2, 20 or 2. sporting saloon, wasn't it? Well, yeah, and it was... My father had one, and I, I learned to drive in a 20 or 2, and uh, I, I subsequently owned three of them, uh, although none of them were as nice as my dad's car. My dad's car was immaculate. China blue, BBS alloy wheels with polished rims and gold centres, uh, blue drail on interior. And 
it was quite it was getting on a bit when I when he got it and when I it was kind of a classic car, but it was his every yeah. it was his everyday car. And he, he was a jobbing builder, so he had his LDV van with the sliding doors and the sliding windows, and that was what he drove mainly. But the BMW was his, his pride and joy. And I remember I came back from passing my driving test, which was four days after I'd passed my motorcycle test and 11 days after the birthday that made it legal for me to drive on the road. So I passed both tests within two weeks. And I came back a bit full of myself. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and my dad said, I said, Dad, I passed. And he said, I'll never forget. He said, um, well done. Don't think you're going to be driving around in the BMW. I've got you a Citroen. And I went out the back. And in many respects, it was the kind of um, the older equivalent of that Citroen C1 you were just talking about. Yeah. And out the back was my much loved, not at the time, when I clapped eyes on it for the very first time. I'd gone from the high of passing my driving test to the low of going through the back door, walking down through our back garden and opening the, the wooden gate, which meant I couldn't see it, and revealing a slightly careworn Citroen Ami brake. <laughs> and thinking, oh, my God, it looks it's like a garden shed. I'm going to be driving a garden shed. But I love that car. When he got rid of it, when he sold it out from underneath me, because that's the kind of guy my dad was. When I went back in the house, I had to pretend. I, I had to pretend I was like really thrilled. I went, "Oh, thanks, Dad. Great." And he went, "Yeah, you can pay me back weekly." I went, "Right, okay." So I paid I him. But you wish you still had that car. They're worth a fortune now. Well, yeah, they are. They're worth an absolute. They're worth a fortune because, in many ways, um, we we were just talking about it when we were talking about the DS. That Ami was at the opposite end of the scale. In yeah. that it had none of the luxury and none of the refinement that a DS had. It was an incredibly simple car. But the ge- what I realised was the genius of it was its simplicity. You could fix it with an adjustable wrench, a screwdriver and a roller gaffer tape. Almost anything that went wrong with it. It used no fuel. I used to look no. at the fuel gauge and think, is that thing broken? Because it just used no fuel. And get this, you could get a reasonably big motorbike up to about 250cc in the back. And you, if you could if you could kind of lay it on its side and get it in the back, which proved incredibly useful. But when, name a car that you can do that to these days. Well, it, it comes back to, um, we had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, and he's got a year one Range Rover. And yeah. it comes back to the, which, of course, what do people remember about the year one Ranger? What fact, what pub fact will people always quote back at you? That you could clean it out with a hose. You could swi- oh, yeah, 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 yes, you, of course. Yeah, you That's could right. swill yeah. it out because they thought, yeah, what if, uh, what if a farmer's got to take a, a pig to market or whatever? <laughs> You know, and, it, and it's not house-trained, because no. <laughs> it's a pig. He might have to swill the car out, so we'd better rubberize the whole thing so that you can kind of mop it out or swill it out with a hose. I mean, now, how far is the Range Rover removed? I mean, only yesterday there was a report on the radio saying that, did, did you hear it? It was something like four-fifths of four yeah. wheel, large four-wheel drives. That's right, registered to urban areas. Are registered to urban areas. Yeah. It, it annoyed me a bit, that report, because it, it was on the BBC, and, you know, I was many... Hold on, how far are we into the conversation? 
first mention of the BBC and Top Gear. You know, I was there for many years myself. I usually, yeah. I usually manage to go a bit longer before I mention it, but <laughs> what the hell. So I love the BBC in many respects, but the report was kind of saying, the report was kind of between the lines saying, what are these people doing driving around in a great big 4 by 4 in the living town? And it was that kind of... They don't need it. And I think, well, hey, guys, guess what? We don't live in a society that's predicated on need. We've decided, we've decided many times we've been offered a more socialist alternative in this. Ooh, get a bit political, as Ben Elton used to say. We've yeah. been offered a more socialist way of life, and we have comprehensively rejected it because at the end of the day, everybody wants a Lamborghini. And you know the best example of that is? Gone. Old JK from Jamiroquai. Oh, he's, absolutely. He's he's not in your um he's not in your celebrity uh, car football thing, is he? Not yet, no. Not yet. Well, he might be part of it at he the show, be. but we haven't got him yet. Well if you remember his first album was very sort of eco conscious, emergency I remember buying it on tape, that's how long ago it is. That's right, emergency on planet emergency Earth. Emergency on planet Earth which sort of said, you know, we're killing the seas, uh, you know, we're ruining the planet, blah blah blah. Massive hit. What was the first thing he did? He bought a Lamborghini. <laughs> and, then and then a whole host of Ferraris. Because one supercar's not enough. You couldn't but, make it up. You no, couldn't make true. it up. Gets rich and, with a green message and then yeah, says, oh, yeah. can I can I now afford a large V12 mid-engine supercar? I'm going to have one. <laughs> and, and you're not going to change people. That, that, that's, and, and, and until the eco-friendly green vehicle... Um, and Tesla are going some way towards that until that becomes desirable and cool to be seen in like a Porsche or a Range Rover. It, it, you're not going to change people. So what you've got to do is accept these are the kind of cars that people want and therefore make these cars more e- environmentally friendly, I guess. Well, that's what Tesla did. I mean, it's turning into a bit of a sort of Tesla loving, but I have been at this game long enough to have driven a lot of electric cars from yeah. the early 90s, mid 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. And it almost seemed as if the manufacturers were deliberately making them ugly and impractical because they didn't actually want to make them. But they had to pay lip service to the fact that, they, oh, yeah, yeah, we've got, we've got an electric alternative. Here it is. And it was dreadful. You know, they, they really weren't trying. And the other thing was, if they made an electric car, it looked like Postman Pat's van. It was the least sexy, most sort of four-square, unattractive lump of metal that you could imagine. Elon Musk comes along and says, why can't electric cars be sexy? So the Twizzy, what, you, know, with, you know, with things like, like that, Andy, I always think that if they deregulated them in some way, that vehicles like that, they'd be like a starter vehicle. I remember the first time I was in France, and one of those little axioms headed... Do you remember those? Yeah, I do, Heading towards me. And I'd be warned, they said, oh, yeah, if one of these tiny cars is coming towards you, get out of the way, because they are kids or people who've had their driving licence taken away uh, because they... Somebody worked out that they don't qualify as motor vehicles because of their weight, their curb weight and the engine size and all that. That's so, the quadricycles. Yeah, and, so, uh, so, but it's um, and it's really sad that I know this stuff, isn't it? But um, there's two. They make two types. They make a 45 and an 80, which is basically the top speed in kilometres. And you're right. In France, the 45 can be driven by kids. And my my daughter is absolutely dismayed. 
because she's 11 and she does drive the Twizy on private land, of course. Absolutely <laughs> loves the thing. And it's, you know, she thinks, oh, in three or four years I could drive it. I'm like, no, not this way to France, you can't. Underage driving has been a theme of this show since we started it. And it's you always you always find that the posher someone is. And I like posh people. Some of my best friends are posh, bizarre. Yeah. Um uh but they they are different. Posh people are different. And you find that they started driving as soon as they could reach the controls. Sometimes when they even when they couldn't reach the controls, because of course when one has land, one is able to, you know, ex- Absolutely. <laughs> explore. And they're always in that sort of uh, milieu, if you will. Um, there are always spare vehicles hanging them out. I said to somebody, I went on a sh- I used to be involved with country sports. I'm not anymore. I had my time. I see why people do it. I see why people object to it being done. But I spent some time in that world, so I at least know what it's all about. Yeah. And I was on this shoot up in North Yorkshire. And there was the most dilapidated Range Rover you could possibly imagine. No glass in it. Uh, the bonnet was held on with rope. You know, that sort of thing. And it was oh. it was used as a hack to get it had it had full on, full on off road tyres. And of course, the second you venture off road, you realise that the most the single most important thing in making any vehicle get from A to B across rough ground are tyres. It doesn't matter if it's four-wheel drive, two-wheel drive, rear-wheel drive, yep. front-wheel drive. The tyres are crucial. And this thing had the most extreme off-road tyres you could imagine and would go up anywhere. And I asked the gamekeeper about it, and he said, oh, yeah, his nibs bought it new in, like, you know, like 20 years ago. And he drove it around for a while, and then he get get this. Then he gave it his wife, and she put a few knocks on it. He said, and then I got it, and I was using it. He said, and then it, it couldn't get, he said, it couldn't get through an MOT even at the village station, implying, <laughs> implying that when the Lord of the Manor, I think he literally was the Lord of the Manor, when he turned up for an MOT, they kind of, you know, they turn a blind eye to anything that wasn't too serious. But when he even, it couldn't even get an MOT there, it just became this sort of glorified quad bike, you know. And, and I thought, absolutely, that's exactly how to buy and use a car. And the problem for with a lot of people, like, for instance, my pal Mike, who's a real city, city guy, he's only ever lived in Manchester. Well, he's lived in he's lived in three places. He's lived in Oslo, Rome, and Manchester. He's always lived in cities. He's always been a city guy, and he's the kind of guy that would buy a Range Rover brand new and then sell it at the absolute worst possible time when it suffered horrific depreciation. It still looks great. Still not barely a scratch on it. But it's got, it's three years in, it's got 35,000 miles on it, and to the trade, it's worth two halves of nothing. I nearly said something else then. And I thought, I said to him, just keep it. Just park it up somewhere, (laughs) you know, just put it somewhere. Don't sell it now. No, no, I've decided I'm going to get rid of it. (laughs) Just Taking space. Well, Well, I I had, you talk about posh people. I had a a friend of mine years ago, just worked with a French guy, and he came over to the UK, worked with me, he kind of ran the French team and when I was running the UK team of a car company. And I, lovely bloke. Didn't didn't know much about him, but we became great friends. And he said to me, do you want to come over to France? Um, my family having a party. I was like, yeah, I'd love to do that. That'd be really great. So off we trotted to France. And we got to Paris and he said, we're just going to pop into the apartment in Paris and pick up the car. And then we're driving down to, the, to, to where the party's going to be at the family home. 
and I, I, I kind of sort of feel that something here was not as I expected when he pulled up out the garage in this brand new Saab 9, oh, it's a 93, I've got to say 900, but 93 convertible, top of the range. I thought, oh, that's not cheap. We hoofed it down to this land, and it transpired. His family owned what was the equivalent of, I guess, home base right. um, in, the, in, the, uh, in France. So at a few quid, had loads and loads of land, um, a chateau and a hunting lodge. We arrived at the chateau, and we then get in another get in, in, in the hack to go to the hunting lodge, which is about a mile away across the land. And do you know what it was? A larder Neva. So these guys have got all the money that that you could possibly need, but they chose this thing intentionally. And I've got to say, Steve, it was hilarious fun. It was brilliant. And I actually found myself going out, because I was there for four days, taking the Neva out on the land, down some of the country lanes, just for a bit of fun. It was brilliant. And it had never seen, it had never seen a public highway. It had never been registered. And this thing was just great. And I've got a real love for cheap old hacks like that. Yeah, there's something... I mean, I love... I Len... Hold on while I just shed a tear. Uh, the Larder Neva that I drove from Berry Lancashire to the Gambia... Wow. <laughs> and, ..and sold in the football stadium there in Banjul in the Gambia for, for charity and went over there with my good friend Paul Scanlon. Um, and now Paul, how many years on from when we... 2005 we did that trip... Uh, a Ladeneva that we'd found abandoned at the side of the road. I had to go to the police station and say, um, there seems to be an abandoned larder. And they went, oh, yeah, can you can you move it? And I said, well, they said, no, we've been in touch with the, the owner and it was stolen, but he doesn't want it. So we <laughs> we literally got it for nothing and then drove it. As I said, we set off on, Brilliant. We set off on Boxing Day and we got to Marrakesh in, in Morocco, Marrakesh in Morocco, as opposed to the other Marrakesh, you know, like the one yes. in Belgium. Anyway, we got to Marrakesh <laughs> and we had two days where we drove in that car on the road um, over a thousand kilometres on two separate days. And it was, we loved that car. We loved that lot. Well, it wasn't really, we didn't really look at it as a car. It was more like a sort of, like a, a Russian tractor. <laughs> It was, a travelling companion, yeah. I'll tell you what, it was it was incredibly engaging to drive at relatively high speed. I mean, you know, I, I've been up around... I've spent quite a bit of time up around 200 miles an hour on, on both motorcycles and in cars, but it's generally been in vehicles that were designed to do that yeah. sort of speed. 85 miles an hour in a Neva on uh, BF Goodrich Desert Jewelers, which are kind of, you know, not really designed for tarmac... Is very engaging. You are fully focused on the job in hand because... <laughs> well, that, that takes us full circle to doing 75 in a Twizzy. <laughs> They're not supposed to. And, and you get these things called power boxes. And this mod technology is great, isn't it? You sit there and you program it, and it can either be really, really economical and give you loads of range or ridiculously powerful and do about nine miles. So you can guess what I chose. And this thing... <laughs> to 70 miles an hour um and which is great news but scary as hell in something with open sides and skinny tires so there's got to be twizzies that have got r1 engines and hayabusa engines and all that sort of stuff in yeah there's there is if you in fact i think it's for sale on ebay at the moment there was a group of special editions a, a company made them uh, and they Put, they, they t- try to replicate F1 cars and they put big wheels on them, big wins, and they look the part. They look fantastic. 
they don't go much quicker, but they look great. But they do want 22 grams for them. Probably why it's not been sold. <laughs> so where did all this start? When did, when did you first venture out onto the road and what was it in? Well, not being landed. Um, actually, that's not entirely true. When I was a youngster, my dad, we, we lived in, the, I moved from up north, my northern, I moved down to the central London. My dad Wait, hold on, at the hold University on. College. Hold on. Which, yep. pa- which part of the north? Go on. Wigan. I'm a Wigan lad. I was going to say, Entwistle, that's a good Lancastrian. Yeah. That's a proper pro- Lancastrian yeah. name, that, yeah. The, 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 the proper side of up north. Yeah, the right side of the. Panel. Well, in technic- t- right. Do you know where the Do you know where the <laughs> geographical centre of England is? Um, it's I, just. I, I'll I, tell I, you. It's just outside Blackburn, which is, is right? which is okay. north north of Manchester. So technically, geographically, and this is kind of sacrilege, and I might get I might get um, stoned out of the town uh, in a way that you don't care to be. <laughs> Manchester's geographically in the south of England. I'd lock your doors if I... <laughs> well, the north's a state of mind, isn't it? It's like New York. Manchester's like New York. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a place. It's a state of mind. But, oh, I love so, it up there. But, um, but, yeah, so, so I moved down south at nine, and we lived in the university in the centre of London, University College, and at weekends it was closed. So I got to practice driving from probably about the age of... 14, 13, in my mum's silver metro. So that was the very first car that I ever drove. Um, the very first car I ever crashed. The very first car I ever dented. So I thought, in one. I thought you were going to give it that, oh, we lived in London, so we didn't have a car. You know, because... Oh, been, been, been an absolute petrolhead. There was no way I was not going to let my parents have a car. In fact, my my dad, although they were, he wasn't a particular car man, but I think I drove him mad because I was, and he ended up buying a, a selection of, we had a Vitesse, which was great, but it was like the Flintstones car, you could see through the floor, and on the <laughs> M1 at 70, that was always intriguing. And he he was the man who bought a, a Lada, sorry, a, a, a Lancia Beta, and it was the saloon version, it was the S version, 77, and it was three years old, and we got it for a song, because, of course, we didn't know that it was going to turn into a pile of rust after about six months. And this is the point about being in the centre of London. Eventually, we, he just stopped driving it, and I wasn't old enough to drive at this point in time. So when I passed my test, I said to him, can I have the car? And he said, yes, you can. And it hadn't gone anywhere for, oh, I'm going to say two years at this point in time. And uh, taught myself everything that I needed to know about cars. So I serviced it. I got it running. I put you know, new fuel through it, put a new battery in it. All I needed to do to get this thing running, and it ran. And I put it into gear, freed up the clutch, everything seemed to be going, and I moved it, and it went exactly a foot and a half before the front suspension turrets collapsed. <laughs> well, wasn't it? I mean, that, that car, I've just written a piece about that car, curiously, for Auto Italia. And so I went into the whole debacle of how, because it's one of those pub facts where People will take a sip on a pint and say, Lancia Beta, they had to buy them back from the customers. Lancia had to buy them all back because the engine used to fall out when you were doing 70 on the motorway. And you think, well, that's not quite what happened. No. <laughs> but Lancia, it, 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 it's been interesting for me, the sort of the, the current controversy with um, VW and the emissions scandal and all that sort of stuff because... Back in the day, Lancia were incredibly, or Fiat, because, of course, it was yes. Fiat, Fiat by then. 
were incredibly generous in the terms that they offered to customers who had bought a Lancia Beta. Um, but they still got absolutely slaughtered because it was back in the day when there were three TV channels in the UK and ITV News, which was watched by millions of people every night, decided yep. to do an expose. Sue Lloyd Roberts went down to a scrapyard somewhere in Somerset, I think, where they were all taken. And she stood in front of... I'm sure they did this. Having worked in telly, I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but I have worked in television <laughs> myself. Having worked in telly, they actually had a Lancia Beta dangling from a crane for no good reason. I'm sure that the director said, could we... It's a li- There's not much interest visually. Could we possibly, like, use this fantastic crane that you have? Could we... So that you see this... Lancia dangling like sort of Mussolini and his mistress from that lamppost. This Lancia's dangling from this crane, and she stood in the foreground, you know, slagging the Lancia beta and saying all these terrible things. And the truth was, yes, there was a problem where the subframe attached to the engine, but Lancia said, yeah, yeah, we'll buy it back and we'll do this and we'll do that. But they just decided, let's go after them. And, and Lancia never really recovered from that in the UK, did they? No, but it was about the same time that our homegrown product was in real trouble. We were losing homegrown market, weren't we? And Austin and uh, Morris were dying a death. And, you know, we're still very jingoistic. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not British, is it? It's that foreign stuff. And, you know, the foreign product is a problem. So let, let's put that down and hopefully we'll, we'll save the British motor industry. I, I, you know, there's got to be an element of that in it, surely. Yeah, but what's interesting is that, well, I think it's interesting. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else would. Um, when you go into it, the reason, because the Lancia Beta is, is an example of a car that had some, and I had one, I had the, uh, I'll tell you which one I had. I had the Volumex. I had the two-litre supercharged. I had the top-of-the-range car. I had the HPE, the high-performance executive, Volumex. So it was two litres, two-litre supercharged. And I don't know why. I must have just got lucky. I bought it a few years in for nothing because they were were worthless. The car had such a bad name. You only had to say Lancia Beta in the advert, and most people turned the page. But I saw it. It looked cheap. And the one that I had... I could, I could I couldn't find any rust on it. I don't know why. Maybe the, you know, maybe they improved the the quality of the cars. But the reason that I found for the re, for those cars rusting, it's not because again the pub fact of course is they take a sip of the pint, they put the pint on the on the bar, and then they say, of course the reason all those Italian cars from the seventies and eighties are so rusty, then they take another sip, they put the pint down, clerks and pause. Russian steel. And it's it's nonsense. I nearly said something else. No. It's actually nonsense. The reason that they rust so badly is because, just like here in the UK, the Italian auto industry at that time was riven by industrial disputes. I mean, it was bad enough here in the UK with Red Robbo and his gang, sort of at war with the management of British Leyland. You look at fear and every, all the Italian auto industry's trouble with the unions and with... I mean, Italy has traditionally been the most communist country in the West. And so yeah. industrial relations have all been tricky. But, I mean, they had... We had Red Robo standing up on the back of a, the back of a wagon and going, Right, brothers, one out, all out. And, of course, you know, production would alter at British Leyland. 
in Italy, they were having running gun battles with the police and the army at, at car plants. That's re- that's how bad it got. And so often what would happen is the body shells of cars would sit outside for months at a time. Then they'd be taken inside and put on the production line. So guess what? You were just sealing in all that corrosion. And so the, the poor punter goes into the showroom, sees a great-looking car, because, I mean, those Lancia Beta, the Coupe and the, and the, the HPE, great-looking cars. Even the, Mon- the Monte Carlo, which was one of the most... Di- which was called a Scorpion oh. in the US. One of the most disappointing cars you'd ever drive, but a great-looking car. Beautiful-looking car. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. fantastic. The poor punter is buying a car in which, guess what, all the corrosion that has accumulated while all that... Steel was sitting around, has been sealed in by the it's by, from freshness the sealed in, isn't that what they do these days? The freshness is sealed into the shell. <laughs> isn't it weird to be in a, in a car environment where a rusty car is a rarity? But it's not, though, is it, Steve? Well, I don't think it is. I think there are still horror stories out there. Um, I I worked for Mercedes back in well, 2000, 2001. And they, you know, Mercedes had always been very much uh, about the quality. And our customer base was, you know, uh, they came back and bought car after car. And they had expectations. And they, the E-Class that came out in, what, 96, that shape with the round headlights. Yep. Um, they, they, they started making it with substandard steel. And I am, you know, Andy, I am so glad that you've come on the show because this has been a, this this subject has come up three or four times on the yeah. show and my pal one of my best friends was one of the people who bought that e-class and yeah. suffered with it and there are two theories and you're going to be able to put us right on this one is it was at a time when Mercedes were trying to enhance their green credentials and it, they moved from oil-based to water. Oh, this is fascinating. This isn't geeky at all, isn't it? Uh, the they paint. moved from oil-based to water-based paints and that's what was causing the problem. Or, as you've just said, it wasn't that at all. It was substandard, substandard steel, which, say that fast three times. I just tried. <laughs> Not easy. So which one was it? Was it water-based paint or was it substandard steel? It was substandard steel. They, 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 it was the time, if you remember, it was the time that Chrysler got a little bit involved with, uh, that, there was the, that partnership for a while. Remember, Daimler Chrysler. And yeah, and they, they built were, the... Um, the Chrysler 300 was the old E-Class, and That's yeah, right. there, were, there was the a crossfire the, was off the SLK. Yeah, yeah. So, but at the same time, the, the accountants, whereas up till that point, Mercedes has always been, you know, it, it all have been about quality, and the, and the people that were talking about quality and the brand had always been the people who had the, the final say. And for for a while, then, unfortunately, the the accountants got involved. And they started making cars to, to a price. And the the first thing is, well, we can save a bit of money on the steel. It doesn't need to be quite as, you know, quite as thick or we can get it from a different place. And what was happening was, and I remember working for them, I was, I was running, um, I was living out in Maastricht where they had the central customer service. And we so we were dealing with all the different markets. And we were dealing with so many disappointed customers who were loyal Mercedes-Benz customers and had car after car. And all of a sudden, after 18 months, their E-Class was rotting around the headlights or on the wheel arch. Mm-hmm. And now, don't get me wrong, Mercedes made good. 
know, they, there, were, they... there were blisters of rust breaking out yeah. on his car. This, my, mm. my pal, who again yep. was a loyal Mercedes customer of like more than twenty years standing. Absolutely. And all of a sudden, and and and, and owned some immaculate. We we managed to get our cars on the front of Mercedes enthusiasts. They did. The, the editor then, Dan Trent, did a piece about the W116, and he had, my pal had an immaculate um, Havana Brown 280 SE, and yeah. I, I had a 350 SE, so of course his was the six-cylinder, mine was the smallest of the V8s. His car was immaculate in every way. My car looked absolutely fantastic from 100 feet away. From 50 feet away, it looked knockout. From 30 feet away, it looked pretty good. From 10 feet away, you could see. <laughs> you, want to go near it. Absolutely. You, you could but... see that my car wasn't nearly as good as this. But fortunately, because most of the pictures in Mercedes Enthusiast, and we, we managed to get on the cover, and I was chuffed to mint balls that, that my car, which was <laughs> which was in no way anything like the standard of my friend's car, but because it was the V8 on the cover, is is in the background, and mine's <laughs> mine's at the front. I was almost I was almost embarrassed, like, but um, yeah, pictures could tell, like. When people buy uh, cars today online and they say, somebody said to me, oh, yeah, I bought this car, I bought this Bentley online. I was like, oh, well, did you not go and see it? He said, no, he sent me over 100 pictures. And I thought, yeah, there were some pictures of my Mercedes on there. Absolutely. Not quite as as described. If you put it on a lift, it would have been like, oh, step away from the Mercedes. You know, it it, it wasn't quite... uh, Quite no, what, what and, and I think you know, Mercedes learned from that. They learned, unlike some, they learned very, very quickly. So I think it was a it's about a three year period. And, and you know, now of course, modern Mercedes are absolutely fantastic cars. But you try and find a '98 E Class that hasn't got serious rot, you'll be very lucky. Fortunately, it was quite ugly as well. So not too many people would be, would be uh, tempted to preserve. To preserve that that car, unless it's an E fifty five. Oh yeah, which was the was it a Porsche engine or what was the, what was the tie in with Porsche on that car? There, there was Porsche engineering behind it, I think, wasn't there? Yeah, but hold on a sec, Andy. There was it said Porsche in big letters on the side of a say out of Ether back then, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it did. And I think I think that they did the air intake, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and on a, on a, as simple, simple as that. So that was the era when. You looked at a you looked at a Porsche, and an actual Porsche would have a Porsche logo on the back, on the Porsche badge on the front. But if you looked at a Seat Ibiza, it said Porsche in big letters down the side. And do you, <laughs> yeah. remember, do you remember when Proton had Lotus in great, great big letters? Because I think they they went to Lotus and said, "Could you sort out the handling in this dreadful?" Uh, this dreadful um, hatchback that we appear to be manufacturing, which I think was an old Mitsubishi or something like that, that they were making. It was an old Colt, wasn't it? Yeah, that they were making in Malaysia. And they said, uh, I think Lotus basically said, yes, you can put our prestigious name on the side of your car. Here is the bill. (laughs) But we immediately improved the handling just by having our name on the side of the car. That stopped rather quickly. I think people realised, well, when Seats became... 
as good as a VW. I mean, I, I only found out recently that the reason that Seat existed was because Franco put all sorts, General Franco, not like some, yeah. some bloke called Franco, General Franco put all sorts of crazy import duties on vehicles. But if you built them in Spain, then you could get around that. So obviously Seats were Spanish-built Fiats in the same way that you could get a Vespa that was made by Douglas in Bristol instead of by Piaggio in Italy, or my Innocenti Mini, which might... Get this, so it's called an Innocenti Di Tommaso Mini. So it's got the names of two Italian car companies and one British car on it. Absolutely. And where was it made? Go on, have a guess. Begins with B. Belgium. Yes, of course it was made in Belgium. <laughs> yeah, that, that famous car from Belgium. <laughs> I was so disappointed when I found that out. And I only found it out because one day I was cleaning it and I was de- I decided to have a go at cleaning the engine by. And I looked and I, I found this plate, obviously, which I hadn't really paid too much attention to because I was busy putting a loud exhaust on and putting stickier rubber on and a bigger carburetor and all sorts of stuff. And then all of a sudden, I realised that my car's built. And it, I have to say, Andy, it took the shine off the apple. <laughs> They do make great beer, Belgians. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't want to badmouth the Belgians. I like them, but yeah, you're right. They're, they're not renowned for their automotive industry, are they? Right, so this moves on to what is quite an interesting point when it comes to modern motors, whether they be cars, bikes, or whatever. Um, there's, a big fu- there's a big fuss at the moment about Triumph and, and kind of, you know... I'm a huge fan of Triumph Motorcycles and what yep. John, John Bloor did with that company because I've seen so many attempts to revive the once mighty British bike industry. You know, once upon a time, not that long ago, BSA you had an advertising campaign that said, one in four is a BSA. And I, I went into a bike shop and somebody said, hey, look at that, that old poster. One in four is a BSA. One in four of the bikes that were sold in the UK was a BSA. I went, no, 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 no. One in four of the motorcycles sold in the world was a BSA. And he had a, I said, I'll have a closer look. You know, and that was, and he, he was like, wow. And I said, yeah, we dominate. We totally dominated at one time the world motorcycle industry. So that goes away for various reasons, which are to do with the way that the industry works around the world. You know, for the same reason that the paper plant that my father worked at, which you must have had them in Wigan as well, we had textile mills, paper mills, that sort of yeah, thing absolutely. in Bury Lancashire. But at some point, somebody worked out that it really didn't make a lot of sense to bring timber from Canada and bring it to the UK, bring it up the Manchester Ship Canal, which is why when you go down to the uh, the docks in Manchester, the Keys, as they call them now, because yeah. they've been rebranded, you see Toronto Way, Michigan Avenue, Ontario House, all those names from the sort of the timber belt there in, in North America, it didn't make much sense to bring that timber halfway across the world to turn into paper. Some genius said, hold on a sec, what if you built the factory next to the forest? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, so at, it, at one time it didn't, at one point it suddenly didn't make sense to make motorcycles in the UK, it made more sense to make them in Japan, where business law is different. And, you know, Honda was, yeah. a, pri- Honda was a private company for decades, whereas obviously in Britain, you know, the way that business worked back then, you had shareholders. And every year, those shareholders expected you to give them their dividend, a wad mm. of cash. And if you turned around and said, 
can we reinvest it in the business because there's no competition from abroad? Those people would say, no, give me my money. And so they kept on building the Bonneville and the Commando and and expecting people to just continue to buy them in a scenario where the Japanese were saying, wouldn't you prefer a four-cylinder motorcycle with electric start and 12-volt electrics and and chrome all over it and metallic paint? And people went, "Uh, yeah, well, not really. (laughs) (laughs) Not not for a while. No, that was um, a bit uh, later, I guess, wasn't it? People went, yes, I would. And, and, And that patriotism that we talked about that meant that back in the 70s, my grandfather continued to buy British Leyland products um, like a Jag or like a, you know, a Triumph sports car, even though he knew, because he knew cars and he knew bikes, he knew that there were better machines coming from Europe, coming from Japan, but his patriotism would not allow him. The same way as Italians were buying things like an Alpha 6, which is a terrible car. You know, I mean, it's got a great engine, but it's a terrible car, but they were still selling, you know, a few thousand of them every year in Italy because there was that same patriotism. And we were talking about this. I will shut up in a sec. We were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. I'm, I'm sad. I feel sad in some ways that when I started to travel as a teenager back in the day, one of the most exciting things for me about being in a European city was the carscape. It wasn't just the architecture. It wasn't just the Colosseum or the Eiffel Tower or, you know, whatever, the Champs-Élysées mm. or, you know, wherever I was. It was the carscape. So I remember being 14 and being in France and seeing Panards and Simcas and Citroën DSs and CXs and all this. And they were, the French cars completely dominated the carscape in France, just as when I got to Italy, there were Fiats and Lancias and Maseratis and Alfa Romeos everywhere. Go Absolutely. back, go back now. And what do you see? I tell you what you see: Kias. <laughs> it's all the same. That's the, I remember being, you know, being a kid, going on holiday when, when we first started going abroad to the likes of Spain and the Spanish islands, and the hire car. And that was the highlight of my week because my dad would let me have a say, not necessarily choose. I have a say in which one we got, and I'd always like that. I'd always go for the car that you couldn't get at home. And I still do when I go abroad. And I remember you, you mentioned Seat going for the for the for the little Seat Ibiza, you know, back in the day. Oh, no, get the, hold on. Before we had them over here, not the Marbella, which not is... the, Mar- <laughs> the Marbella as well. We had the Marbella, and then of course the little Citroen, um, the, the, the Mokes, weren't they? Not the Mokes. What were they called? The Citroen. I see what it was called. It was called the Mahari. Yeah, the Mahari. Yeah. yeah. So those things. I'd always choose that, and I can actually remember the highlight was a. Subaru, what became the Impreza over here. But right. before they were over here, I remember hiring one of those, and I just loved this thing. Um, but I still do that now. So I, was into, I went to the States, and, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this, Steve. I'd, I'd flown over to um, a trade expo in San Francisco, and I'd got my hire car, and I'd, uh, what, I'd, hired, I'd, I'd put down the Mustang. Um, and I got there, and there wasn't a Mustang available. And they, the, the, the guy behind the desk said to me, but uh, we have a, a, a fantastic three series BMW, you know, and it's a very prestigious car. There, and I said, I don't want a three series. I drive, I drive them all the time at home. Oh, well, what, what about this? He went through Mercedes. He even got to the point of, would you like a Porsche? I'm like, no, I wouldn't. I want something American. And he, we went through. I said, it's something that I can't get back home. And I ended up with a Dodge Charger, which um, which I was very happy with. But it was because it was American, and he couldn't get it in the UK. Right. I've, the best American hire car story I've got, I've got a few, but I'll give you the best one. 
We flew into Phoenix, Arizona, and we went to Hertz, and we had specified a hatchback. And you'll know why, because we were filming. And yeah, so standard, standard practice back in the day, even on Top Gear, another mention of Top Gear, yeah. when it was a car show, oh, uh, instead of a light entertainment programme, nah. featuring Tall Ant and Deck. That's what I'm calling Paddy and Freddy, Tall Ant and Deck. <laughs> I'm not knocking it. They're doing what they're doing, and they're doing it very well, but it's not a car show. Anyway, so um, Tall Lantern Deck, you can take that one from me. You'll start seeing that in, in, in the sort of, on the on the motoring forums, people will be saying, Tall Lantern Deck weren't very good this week. But anyway, so we get in there, and we've specified a hatchback. So we get to the Hertz at, at the airport in Phoenix, and of course it's a vast lot, and there are rows and rows of Buicks and, and Oldsmobile, because this is back in the day, this is 20 years yeah. ago, Buicks, Chevys, Fords, American cars. We ended up with, I think it was called a Plymouth Sunfire. And when we, when we were collecting it, um, when we gave them the paperwork, the guy couldn't conceal his amusement, because he looked at the paperwork and he said, Oh, yes. And his colleague, and he paused, and his colleague sort of looked at him and he went, The guys that want the Plymouth Sunfire. And the, and he's, and the guy <laughs> next to him, who was attending to somebody else, sort of sniggered. He sort of went, <laughs> You know, like this. And it was a source of huge amusement to these, to these Americans that we want. It was like somehow a slight on our, on our manhood that we, we wanted, <laughs> we wanted a hatchback. So I ended up sort of, rather sort of angrily explaining to them, saying, well, we need a hatchback because we're going to be... And I thought, oh, we can't really tell them why because you kind of weren't supposed to do it. You know, you weren't you weren't supposed no. to, to tell them that you were going to drive on the public highway and that the cameraman was going to sit in the back and you were going to gaffer tape the gas struts to keep the lid up and you were going to film out of the back of it. So I could, it was so frustrating that I couldn't say... We're real car people, and, and I've driven way more interesting cars than yeah, you. And exactly. like, we we couldn't really do that. And then they brought it round, and the guy said, "Oh yeah, just one thing. Um, we've had to fumigate it." <laughs> he said, "Because it's been here a year, and no one else has ever rented it." <laughs> oh wow! So, so we got in this car, and it was a smell. And I can't. I, the only thing I can liken it to. Was if somebody, you know, Febreze, you know, like the sort of carpet, like uh, oh, uh, aroma. Lovely. It was almost as somebody got a tube of that and like just thrown it in your face, just taken the top of the lid and gone, there you go, mate. The smell of whatever they'd used to kill off all the sort of rodents and bugs, as they would say, that were living inside this much neglected, I think it was called a sunfire. It might have been called a sunbird. But, but th- there's your there's your excuse if you get pulled over by the cops. But well, here's the thing: the hatchback open to let, get all the smell out. Do you know what I think it was? <laughs> it actually was. I think it was a Vauxhall Cavalier. Because I was looking at it, I'm okay. thinking, is this a cav? But again, it's 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 what we've been talking about, where manufacturers w- will and and obviously still going on today, and perhaps going on today even more than it ever did, will form these alliances because they're always looking to A, save money today, but but B, make money from selling yesterday's car to somebody else. Mm. And and as you're saying, when you travel, you know, and and like the the best examples being things like the Hindustan Ambassador, and I think there was a car in Turkey called the Anadol, which was an old Roots Group car where people would come back from holiday and they'd go, the strangest thing happened, I went on holiday... 
and I rented this car, and I swear it was a Hillman Hunter. <laughs> but it was it was called a, you know it was called something else, and it had a, another another. But but there's there's nothing better for a manufacturer than to make no. to make money from yesterday's car, is there? All that, all that machinery, which is now completely surplus to requirements because you've moved on, you're in the Sierra era. If you can sell the Cortina machinery to someone else, because otherwise you've got to pay to get rid of the damn stuff. It's just taking up space. So if you can sell it on. But the way the world is now, and it kind of comes back to what we're saying about China, I think to an extent that has gone. There won't be these kind of, like, the last generation of Fiat's being sold in Spain or the last generation of of, uh, of Mercedes being sold in America. You mentioned the Crossfire. What an ill-proportioned motor car that was, the Chrysler yeah. Crossfire. It and it like, came out at exactly the wrong time as well, didn't it? It looked, like, it looked like two lots of people had designed it. One had done the front and one had done the back, but they hadn't been allowed to talk or communicate with each other in any way. You're just like, what? What is that? And that and I, I was the person who... Uh, I will let you speak in a sec. Just, sorry about this. But I was, I was the guy who got handed the PT Cruiser to be the first one, you know, because the office called me, the top of the office said, hey, you're going to go to the States and you're going to be the first person to drive this new this new Chrysler. I was like, wow, fantastic. And it's like it's like a hot rod. And we know you love custom cars. I do love custom cars, always have. Yeah. And I was really excited. And then I got there and it was the PT Cruiser. And I drove it and I thought, what is this? And they went, it's a Chrysler Neon and a party hat. And I was like, all right, okay. <laughs> it, was, it was one of those cars where you looked and thought, Okay, that's interesting. Something different. I like the look of that. And then you very quickly realise that you were really being taken for a ride. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but not a very interesting ride. Well, it was no. like it was like. So I I dodged the bullet on the Plymouth Prowler. Do you remember that the one that re the one the one that really looked like a hot rod, but again didn't deliver on 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 what it promised. And I think it's really interesting that era. Um, from sort of, shall we say, although the Viper's the exception, um, yes. they did rather well with that. I was well just going to mention the Viper. Everyone yeah. got on the tail, kind of basically on the tail of the Viper, didn't they? Well, I've I, I told this story uh, before, but one of the doyens of the British press was on the Viper launch, and I was on it. It was in the south of France, the European launch. It was probably the most glamorous motoring event I've ever attended. Chrysler really pushed the boat out. They rented the Hotel Biblos in Saint-Tropez. It was just incredible. We, we, we just had such a ball. But when we got there, like I say, one of the longest-serving members of the British motoring press, a guy who'd been at it since more or less just after the war and was just about to pack it in, turned round to the rest of us, must have been in his 70s by this time, and said, boys, 400 brake horsepower. 400 brake horsepower. Mark the day. Mark the day because we'll never see that it's like again. You just think, <laughs> what has it only got four hundred horsepower? I mean, look, look at what Detroit is knocking out now, and it seems to be right at the end of the internal combustion age, which has been with us for what one hundred and twenty, one hundred and thirty years yeah. now. Some of the most interesting and most exciting, right at the end, some of the most interesting and exciting cars are being made. It's almost like they're like, okay, the gloves are off. It's like, you know, so what if they ban it? So what if they if, if they if they tell us that we can't we can't sell it to the public because it's it's too powerful or whatever? 
we're going to switch to electric in a few years' time anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But here's something controversial. Go on. Are we? Are we? Ooh. Don't get me wrong. Electric, you know, we've got the electric motor show as part of the British Motor Show, so it's a big part of what we're doing. And it's certainly a big part of our future. But is it the only part of our future? And I don't think it is. I think we... So one of the things and we, we, that we're looking at is this... We're calling it the road to 2030. Because, of course, it's, they're banning sale of petrol but they're banning the sale of fossil fuel not the sale of petrol and there's a, there's a guy i know really interesting guy who was very involved in in the oil industry for an awful long time worked at the big companies made quite a bit of money moved out of that he's now heavily involved in synthetic fuels and they're looking and i know that porsche are involved in this is they're looking at synthetic basically synthetic petrol that doesn't put any of the bad stuff into the atmosphere um, you know, we can talk about hydrogen, which is another thing, but this, this synthetic fuel, any internal combustion engine will be able to run on it. And allegedly, it puts nothing into the atmosphere other than, I think, water. And that's about it. Allegedly. I, 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 you know, I haven't seen this in action yet, but that's what they're investigating. So could that be the reprieve for the internal combustion engine? Well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> so, well, so do I. I don't get me wrong. Electric cars are fantastic. I don't know, we've already said I've got the Twizy. I, I think you know some of the cars they drive brilliant, and I think for small cars they're certainly the future. But I think you know for certain vehicles, synthetic could be an opportunity. Could be an option. Right, we're done, Andy. That's it. We, we'll stitch those two together. Um, okay. Just, just tell me when is the show and where is it and all that. Carry on and how can people watch your website and all that. So it's the 19th to the 22nd of August. It's at Farnborough International Expo Centre. We yeah. indoors and outdoors. We've got all sorts of halls, electric car halls. We've got live arenas. We've got test driving. The website is www.thebritishmotorshow.live. Right. And it's only £37 for a family of four. Can't beat that. That's it for another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. If you want to listen to it again, don't worry, there's always the podcast, or you can listen to it here on Fab. There's a repeat on Saturday. See you next week.